Well, turn to page six of your notes, please. And you'll see the title says the essential elements of the new wine. I was just thinking when we were singing that song, Lord, we want to become more like you. Um, I wonder whether you're going to want to become more like the Jesus that we're going to look at in a moment. Because there's this beautiful, compassionate, wonderful Jesus, and but there's a, a, a ruthless strength and, and violence when it comes to seeing that his Father's will is done on earth the way that it's done in heaven. And uh, that's the picture we're going to see perhaps more of this morning. So I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to become like you, Lord, because it's easy to get killed. <laughs> I'm serious, it's easy. And uh, certainly you make a lot of enemies and there'll be a lot said against you. And that's um, something that we're going to look at. But So, as we looked at, at yesterday, Jesus came to his own hometown and took the scroll of Isaiah 61. They expected him to read from verse 10, which was the tradition. And to their shock and horror, he began to read from verse 1, which left them with the conclusion that he'd either gone insane, he was either um, filled with a, a gross arrogance or he was the Messiah. And it says in, you know, in the Greek, it says that when he'd finished reading, he sat down. The word is kathidzo, which means, we're going to look at this hopefully later, but it, it's a word that you have to comprehend because it's a very important word to understand. But in other words, he, he sat down comfortably on his throne for the purposes of exercising rule, government, and authority. There was a, a tremendous authority about which he did this. And it brought him into immediate collision with the religious spirits that were happily enjoying total control of the Jewish system and of the synagogue, and uh, now the collision had come. And there's a violent reaction, which we looked at briefly yesterday. In fact, they literally tried to kill him. But the response of Jesus was to become equally violent in his spirit. It wasn't to back off. <clears throat> and we need to know that. There are times when, you know, as Christians, we walk the way of, of love and of compromise, but there are other times when you cannot budge an inch from what is the revealed will of God. And he's looking for people who can be more like Jesus, because usually we just back off and... Um, leave the thing unresolved but Jesus knew when to be full of forgiveness and graciousness and when to be like a rock that could absolutely not be moved and he wasn't going to back off here because he knew that the whole flow of the new wine and the whole coming of the kingdom and indeed the salvation of the world depended upon dislodging certain things which were preventing that power to come upon the earth and he wasn't going to walk round it he wasn't going to you know just walk on eggshells, he came, he came straight in with, with an of, of violence and he immediately began to dismantle all the traditions which stood in the way of the new wine. Nothing was going to stay in the way of the new wine. I want you to look, as you see at the end of page six, there were three things that he went for. 
I want us to come to John chapter 2, because I see many of these same things in our situation here in, in various parts of the world. Um, we find that there's an old religious tradition which is in the way of the new wine. The first thing that he deals with, notice this, is that uh, this is Jesus. This, verse 11, it says, this is the beginning of the signs which Jesus did in Cana. So we're, we're going straight on from the fact that he turned that water in the stone water pots into wine. And that, as we saw yesterday, was an was a, 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 um, allegorical para, parabolic miracle. It had a deeper meaning. In fact, all the, all the miracles in John's Gospel have a deeper spiritual meaning. And John chose the eight miracles because of what they said in terms of a great profound spiritual truth. We're going to look at these things in the last morning because we need to understand these things. And the key to understanding the Gospel of John is to read the events that took place around the miracle. Then that helps you to understand the miracle. So the teaching or, or, or the, the stories that John tells immediately associated with the miracle gives you further insight into the miracle. Or if you like, the miracle gives you further insight into the reason why he did what he did. Because having turned the water into wine and having taken those, those grey, rigid stone pots and turned them into a, a river of, of, of blessing and of life and exuberance and inebriation and, and I don't suppose after drinking five bottles of wine each people were behaving in a very orderly um, way. There's a sort of certain amount of looseness around the place. You should have been in some of the meetings that were going on here just last week in San Antonio and you, you think, my Lord, you know, and this was God. People getting powerfully healed and at the same time strange anointings coming upon people and strange things that they're doing. And you think, well, this is the most drunken party I've ever seen in my life. Well, that's God. I'm sorry. And so then it says, having um, done this first miracle, and manifested his glory. That's how he manifested his glory, okay. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured over the changers' money and overturned the tables and said to those who sold us, take these things away, don't make my father's house, uh, my father's house into a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. And they said, well, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, but it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of his temple, the body. There's a tremendous amount in there. We could spend all morning on this. But he's saying, look, frankly, I'm not that interested in buildings. And you find that again and again with Jesus. He doesn't believe in holy buildings. He believes in holy people. Now, buildings can serve a purpose, but uh, they are only facilities for the real temple to come together and meet and use them for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. 
He said, I'm not interested in this temple. I mean, actually, Herod built it for political reasons. Herod was, this particular Herod was part Edomite. He wasn't exactly accepted by the Jews. So he, he built this temple in total hypocrisy because there, was, there wasn't a more wicked man than Herod. He built it just to impress the Jews so as to capture their hearts. So the whole thing was political. It was never to the glory of God. It was never really with God in mind at all, but it was just the sort of uh, thing that happens. Amen? Jesus just dismissed it, but he said, you're not going to make my father's house into a house of merchandise. So the first thing he touched, beloved, was the, was the financial integrity of the religious system. That's the first thing he went for. And it, incidentally, it was the last thing he went for. If you go to Matthew 21, and those last few days before he was crucified, he went into the temple for the last time, and he did exactly the same thing, except things had got worse. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, you've made this a house of merchandise. But because they didn't receive the correction, because the moment he walked out of the temple, they just put it all back the same way as it was, and they totally refused to receive the correction that he was trying to bring to them. By the end of his ministry, it had become a den of thieves. They weren't just making it merchandise, but it was crooked. Now here are these things, because I believe one of the things that God seeks, is seeking to do is to release vast new financial resources to the kingdom in order to get the kingdom established. But the trouble is, can he find the people of righteousness and integrity that he can release that money to? I mean, the main reason why Islam has got any clout in the world is because of its financial resources. It's a lousy message, but they have a lot of money. Is that not true? And the same is true of ACLU and, all, and the homosexual gay lobbies. All their ability to influence our society to the degree which they do is simply because of the money that they've got. And we need to be praying on the one hand for those financial resources to be cut off and on the other hand for what we need to establish the kingdom to be, to be liberally released to us. But then can God find the men and women of integrity that won't fiddle the finances? That's the question. And, and I believe there's a great clean-up coming. We shall look at this later, but and see, the same thing happened with the early church. There was such a... And if you want God's presence, you want God's power, you want God's glory, then you've got to walk in the holiness of God. And one of the first... The first thing he touched was the financial realm. And you'll find that comes again and again in the flow of the new wine. As the new wine began to flow in the early church, and, and there, was, there was adequate financial resources there which were, were being wisely used. And then a couple called Ananias and Sapphira who did, went in for what, what we would call today a bit of mild hypocrisy. They pretended to give everything when they didn't. And God struck them both dead in the most staggering way. And in doing that, he cleansed the church to allow it to continue in even greater power and even greater anointing. Now, it was necessary to do that because if he had allowed that sort of thing to, to continue, it would have meant that the power and the thrust of the church would have been totally uh, blunted and it could not be the church that it was. So if we let these things sink in and we look at what's going on around in situations and circumstances that we know, is there any wonder we're so powerless? Hello? And maybe we've got to start with ourselves to make sure that as far as we are concerned, we walk in righteousness. We pay our taxes. 
I'm not suggesting you pay unnecessary but taxes, but we, we, we are totally honest, we're, we're scrupulous about our financial integrity. And, and when money comes in for the kingdom, we see that it's used for the kingdom. And so I could go on, but here they were, they were just making money out of people. And you, you watch some of these ministries on TBN and you think, all, you, know, you feel embarrassed by, by the money-raising techniques. And when you find this stuff's been pumped all over the world, you think, um, I'm not sure I want people in other countries to see this picture of American Christianity. Unfortunately, they're the ones that have got the money to put it on these international TV programs, and so you see this stuff all over the world, and I'm crying out for, oh God, give us a mighty cleanup. And then we might see the, the finances re released. You know, God give us godly businessmen whose only passion is to make money for the kingdom. It's interesting that well, I've read these statistics that 80% that, that of the giving in the church comes from the people of the lowest income. That's a fact. The biggest givers are the people that have least. And the, the people who have most difficulty giving are the people that have most. It's very hard to get someone who's in a high income bracket to even tithe because he thinks it's too much money for the church. Now, admittedly, many cases, if you give large sums of money to the church, they stupidly waste it. So why waste all your hard-earned money on people who don't know how to handle money? <coughs> Amen? So correction has got to come all over the place. But if we get this thing right, then I believe we're going to see a flow of finance like we've never ever seen before, and we need it to get the job done. One of the biggest battles in Roe versus Wade, for example, is the financial... Uh, the funds to finance the legal cases which have got to be won in order to change the law. And we're going to face a lot more of this kind of stuff. Amen? Well, everyone's gone very sober. Oh, I want to be like you, Jesus. Okay. Well, maybe you're going to have to take a whip and do something about the lack of financial integrity that you know about. That's where he started. You can't have the flow of wine. You cannot have the flow of the kingdom in that which is, un, which is tainted in any way with uncleanness and unrighteousness. And that's the bottom line. The next thing that Jesus did was to tackle all the religious customs of eating and drinking which hindered liberty and fellowship and did nothing to make a man righteous. Now let's just go to Matthew 15, for example. We can go to many places. This comes again and again. Let's go to Matthew 15. And we read that, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? So on the one hand, they're ever so picky about washing their hands, not for hygiene reasons. I mean, if you've been out sort of stroking dogs and praying over I don't know how many people, your hands might need a wash for, for, for um, you know, hygiene reasons, but it's not a religious exercise. Amen? It doesn't make you any more holy whether you do or don't wash your hands. It's just a matter, it might be sensible to wash your hands, but it, it's, it's nothing, that, when it becomes a religious tradition, it gets ridiculous. 
And this was, to them was far more important, and yet they had, they had bent the law so that uh, they didn't have to honour their father and mother. They just had to say, it's Korban, which means that all their vast resources, they could say, they're dedicated to the Lord, which means I don't have to support my mother or father who might be in financial difficulty. So he says, now you're violating this fundamental principle of loving your own father and mother and honouring them in order, you know, and you don't have any conscience about that, but you're fiddling around with these stupid little religious rules on the outside. I mean, I've been to certain churches where they say, well, brother, you can't preach unless you put a tie on. I think, well, where does it say that in the Bible? I mean, if you want to wear a tie, that's fine, but if you don't, it doesn't make me any more or less holy. But in certain parts of the world, you, you cannot function in any way without having the appropriate external dress. They won't let you. I mean, I, I'm, and if it's in all, I mean, I have done in, for greater opportunity. I've gone along with the tradition. You'll find Jesus does the same thing. Like when I got the opportunity to preach in a vast Catholic community and to preach the Word of God, you know, to this to this uh, morning uh, mass where there were. A, I think thousands in the meeting and thousands outside. Well, I, I agreed that I would put on the stuff in order to, to, that they would listen to me. But I hadn't put it on in my heart, if you know what I mean. So, so there's wisdom here. But, but see how Jesus starts to, he just stops doing all this religious stuff. Because he says, no, now the new wines come, we've got to have a new wineskin. Now for, for those first 30 years, he didn't bother about these things because there was no point in preparing a wineskin for wine that was not there. But once this new wine starts flowing, you're going to have to start getting, you know, and in our African-American churches, there's all kinds of African-American culture that's got to get out of the way of the new wine. It's, it's absolutely binding, and in certain of our denominations of different kinds, there's binding restrictions. And if it's in the way of God, then it's got to go. And Jesus was absolutely unbending here. He wouldn't budge an inch on this. He, he said, don't you understand you're offending all these people? He said, I'm afraid the, the price of getting a new wine is, 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 is much more important. Let's just move on in, in Matthew 15. And then they, he said, you're a bunch of hypocrites, verse 7. That made him popular. And then, then he called the multitude to himself, verse 10, and said, look, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. And they said to him, did you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And listen to what he says in verse 13. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. In other words, there are certain things that have to be dug out of our Christianized society. And they've got to be uprooted to let the new wine flow. And Jesus was quite firm about that. So here's this, this Jesus, I want to be like you, Lord. I, want, I thought when we sang that, I thought, well, I wonder what we really do. You see, it has to start with someone. And this someone was anointed. He was called. It was the right moment. He was in such relationship with his father, he knew precisely what to do and what not to do. And you'll find the same thing with the Apostle Paul. Sometimes he was conciliatory to people's tradition because there were far greater purposes than dealing with the tradition at that time. 
But there are other times when that was the blockage which hindered the flow and it had to be dealt with. And only God can show you what's right to do and what's not right to do. At one time he had Timothy circumcised in order not to offend the Jews because there was a greater purpose. In, in, he didn't want to be fighting over the trivialities when the major issues were his concern. But later on, he, he stood like a rock and would not allow circumcision of the Gentiles because of the bondage that it would bring them into. There were times when he, he became as a Jew in order to win the Jews, but there were times when he deliberately refused to be Jewish at all in his outward life because he wanted to send a message that those days were over. And he knew when to do it, and he knew when not to do it, and Jesus was identically the same. But what I admire here is the absolute courage of these guys to be, to be they weren't interested in being popular, they were interested in being obedient. Then he attacked all the rules and regulations. Well, let's just read on in Matthew 15. He said, he said, let them alone, they're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, they're both going to end up in the ditch. Now that's Jesus. And then Peter says, explain this power. He says, are you also without understanding? Don't you understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth from the heart, they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. But eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. In other words, he says, stop worrying about your hands and start worrying about your heart. And there's a power in the cross which is yet to come there's a power in the cross which can so transform the heart and there's a circumcision of the heart which is so powerful that it transforms your inward man and then what flows out of your mouth is the natural outflow of your inward man you're not putting on an act you're not being a hypocrite you're not saying one thing but thinking something else you're not acting one thing and and and, and feeling something else you're you're genuine from the inside to the outside Amen? Now that's the power. Now that's where he begins. And it wasn't popular, and it certainly had a very dividing effect. Let's just move on. Well, I don't know what to say about the Sabbath, except to say that he dismantled all this stuff about the Sabbath, and he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what we've got to learn about many things of the Old Testament is we've got to appreciate the godly principle without being by, bound by the rules. And the basic principle is that, that we're designed to have a day of rest. I remember years and years ago when I was a research scientist working for the Kodak Film Company. And, and they had these very expensive film coating um, uh, lines which take about... Uh, about six hours to start up to begin production. And then it takes about four hours at the end of the week to shut down. So there's ten hours a week is taken up in, in getting the machines ready or shutting the machines down after the production. And they worked a five-day week, so it meant that you started real production about two or three in the afternoon of Monday, and by midday Friday you were shutting down. 
So they had this bright idea that if they ran continuously for 10 days and gave everybody four days off, they could have a much better real vacation. And so they said, oh, that's great. They said, Let's try it. So they took, they took one particular coating track and put it on the 10-day, four-day cycle. But what they found was that when they got to the sixth day, people, start, people started making, after the sixth day, people started making mistakes and the waste went up through the roof. They said it doesn't work. Men cannot work faithfully for more than six days without needing a rest. Well, the Bible says that. So they had to go back to the, to the other system. Well, because things have changed now. They do three shifts and some people work all night and all kinds of crazy things. But it was a very interesting, because I saw the, that report. And it was very interesting to see that report. And, and to see there declared in that experiment that men cannot work for longer than six days without needing a rest. Now, that's the principle. And how you work that out is between you and God. But you can always do good on the Sabbath. So if someone's sick or needing help, then Jesus said, look, don't be bound by the rules. Give them what they need. Amen? I'm not here to teach on the Sabbath, but there is a place for the principle of the Sabbath in our everyday life, but not for the law-bound legality of the Sabbath. Amen? Amen? And, and I just want to leave that in your heart and mind and say, well, Lord, just show me how I walk the balance in these things. Because if I go on working, 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 working without taking a break, I'm violating myself and I'm breaking the rule, the real principle of the Sabbath. I was quite surprised. Um, for example, let me give you an example of Dr. David Yonggi Cho. Um, he, he, years ago, years ago, this would be way back in the early 80s, I would imagine, that uh, God taught him two things. One of the things was that he himself had to take a day off. It was, it was Monday, and he was, because he and his wife were almost, I mean, he said this publicly, so was his wife, so I'm not telling tales on him, that they were almost at the point of divorce because his, his passion for the work was consuming him in a, in a wrong way. And she, she'd become so offended by the fact that she was rejected for the ministry and she was now becoming difficult and awkward and making it hard for him to function. She said, well, Lord, if necessary, I'll even lose my wife in order to fulfill the calling of God upon my life. Sounds very spiritual, but it was totally wrong. And one day the Holy Spirit said to him, look, you've got it all wrong. He said, from now on, you're going to take the whole of Monday off and you're to take your wife out and do whatever she wants to do with that day. And he said, I found myself with this great church of, at that time it was around about 100,000 or so, it was still a good sized church. He said, going to the park and feeding the ducks. <laughs> he said, and I thought, well, all the things I could be doing, but it, 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 we go to the mall and shop, and all the things I hate. <laughs> he said, but I was obedient to the Holy Spirit. He said, within three months, he said, our marriage was healed and we fell in love with each other again. And then she became his greatest partner in the work. And when, when we were there, she was an incredible able administrator running the whole printing division of the church. And when you think that they produce a newspaper which is published to over 800,000 people, more than most newspapers in our towns, she ran the whole publishing department. She did it with incredible ability, but now she was a partner in the work. But boy, did they look forward to Monday. <laughs> so when, when Yonggi Cho saw how good it did to him, he shut the whole church down and said, everybody will 
will have Monday off and no one's to do anything, however urgent it is, unless it's an emergency prayer for someone who needs to be healed. That's it. And he made a few other exceptions. He said, we're shutting down. Now, this is the interesting thing. When he'd learned that, then God said to him, well, now you've learned to love your wife and, and fellowship with your wife and, and, and your whole marriage has been healed and transformed and you've realized that you are made to work for six days and have a day off. He said, now, he said, I want you to learn to, to come and love the Holy Spirit in the same way. And that's when he started to spend the first, so every, and this was what was going on when we, I was last there, and I'm sure it still is going on today, he would come into his office at 7 o'clock in the morning and until 11 o'clock in the morning no one could see him, no one could talk to him because that was his time with the Holy Spirit. In his office there was his desk with all his you know, uh, books and stuff but he had a large office and in the other side of the office was an even bigger desk and an even bigger chair which was empty. He said that's the Holy Spirit. So just to remind me that every day that I'm the junior partner around here. And, 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 and these are principles which I think we can learn from this. Man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. Now as we've got to learn, God, what are you teaching us in this whole concept of Sabbath rest? God worked for six days and then he rested. Amen? So some of us may have to adjust our lifestyle to, to fit in with the principles which God wants us to understand here. Maybe your marriage could be rescued from the problems that it's in right now. Maybe your ministry could be rescued. And you and God the Holy Spirit could have a new relationship which will transform you and transform everything that you touch. Amen? But to make it a, a lot of religious rules is... is it was never the idea, and it wasn't to make man a prisoner of the religious rules, it was to make man free, that he might serve God acceptably. Amen? Now, these were the three things he dealt with, and you can read about this in Luke chapter 4 through 8, <coughs> in Mark 2, uh, 2 and 3 and 4, the same in Matthew, you'll find it's there in all the scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's go on to page 7. Then the flow of miracles began, and multitudes joyfully came to him. Many were healed, and many demons were cast out. And you read about that, Luke 4 through Luke 8. There's same in Matthew, same in Mark. Now, I want you to see here that now he faces another problem. The problem is that the other religious leaders became jealous and angry over his popularity over his authority and his power. He didn't speak like the scribes and Pharisees, he spoke as someone with authority. He had something to say from God, it was pertinent and it was powerful. And they listened to him. And he had tremendous impact upon them. Now that generated jealousy. And you will find that in any city situation today because of the carnality of many of the lead, God's leaders that you're going to hit that problem. And it's a very difficult problem to tackle because once again you've got to know when to make concessions and when to stand your ground. Because if you, if you play to the lowest common denominator of city unity you'll end up being so paralyzed by the unity you can't do anything. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
And if you say, well, we mustn't offend anybody, that's our primary purpose, well, then you won't do anything. I'm guaranteeing that right now. You cannot do anything without offending someone of significance. That's inevitable. What you've got to know is where are the right lines. Now, Jesus always walked this right line of, of being inflexible about his Father's will, about the, the power of the kingdom, and about the liberty for the new wine, but he constantly lived a life of denying himself. You know what true humility is? Because we, we were away at a, at a conference and people were, were having this tremendous time of brokenness before the Lord, but I felt uncomfortable because it was the, it was the wrong kind of brokenness, if you know what I mean. Do you understand what I'm talking about? People were humbling themselves and, and deprecating themselves, and I felt uncomfortable. And so I felt I needed to say something. Is that for me? Thank you, sir. That's for you. That's okay. Thanks. I just have a guzzle. It's water, but it may, <laughs> you, you may turn to wine. <laughs> So I pointed something out. I pointed out that in the book of Genesis, it says there that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Amen? Now, who wrote the book of, the book of Genesis? Moses did. Amen. You go to um, Colossians. I'm sorry, I forget where it is now. It's, it's where Paul says, he says, it's in Thessalonian letter. He says, you know how humble we were before you. And who wrote the letter? Paul. And, and then you find that Jesus says, in Matthew 6, he says, take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest to your soul. So you, find, you think all these guys are boasting about how humble they are. It cannot be the concept of humility that we've been thinking about. And I'm not going to get into this in any, any detail, but... but my definition of true biblical humility is that you are not concerned about yourself. You're concerned about God, his glory, and the kingdom. It's, if you like, true humility is a denial of self. And you can be very strong, like Jesus, very courageous, like Jesus. You can be totally inflexible, like a rock, like Jesus. And yet at the same time, he said, now you want to learn about me because I'm meek and lowly of heart. Because what made him inflexible and unmovable was his passion, his zeal, as it was said in John 2, the zeal of your house consumes me. And so there's, there's, a, there's a ruthless passion for the kingdom and for the glory of God. And there's a total denial of self and disinterest in self in pursuing that purpose. Now that's true biblical humility. So you can be really humble and yet you can be really strong. Hello? On the other hand, pride is the exalting of self. That's the root of pride. What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? How do I look? How do I come out the other side? How do I appear? If, if you've got your focus is on the eye, then that's pride. If the focus is upon the kingdom, then that's God and it's genuine humility. Does that help at all? Yeah. And so I said, I think we want to get rid of this kind of, you know, no, I don't think God wants to break us. He wants us to humble. It's also interesting in Scripture that you never find anywhere in Scripture a place where God humbles us. He gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves. 
The exhortation is always on you to humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due season. So what God does is he gives you opportunities, he gives you situations, and then you can choose whether you want to exalt yourself or whether you want to exalt the Lord, whether you want his glory and his kingdom or whether you want your name and your reputation. Jesus is the perfect model of a meek and lowly man, but boy, was he strong. Now, in, on page 7, I've got a list here, of, because I've already mentioned this a number of times, I want to spend a little bit of time on the prayer life of Jesus, which was the preparation, and it was the driving force of the new wine. We've already seen in Luke chapter 3, verses 21-22, Jesus was praying, and it was that prayer which prepared him for his anointing, which led on to the beginning of the new wine. And we, we've said it several times, and we're going to probably say it a lot more times, that everything about the new wine is, is, is prayer preparation and it's prayer driven. But once the new wine comes, then for it to continue, it's got to be driven by prayer. And I've got some examples of that here. We find that in, um, in, on page 7, I don't know how much time to spend on this, but uh, I want you to... It's all in the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the great Gospels on, on it. Come to Luke chapter 4, verse 40. I'm not sure how much time to spend on this. When the sun was setting, all those who, were, who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Now that's the day that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the day when we don't see a few people healed, we see everybody healed. Because that's the new wine. And I don't know quite why it works the way it does. I've spent much time and exercise in, and I don't understand the apparent sporadicness of God's release of healing. Sometimes I pray for someone, I don't feel any particular, and there's an incredible miracle that takes place that surprises me. Other times I pray for people, and, and just as earnestly, and, and yet I don't see the results that I'm looking for. I'm perplexed by this, I'm not satisfied with this. It's not biblical to have one's healing ministry at this level. I believe we've got something to do on our own. I think we've got something to do corporately to see this kind of release. I'm just simply saying that Jesus had the kind of prayer life that gave him 100% success in the healing ministry. There wasn't a sick person, there wasn't a demonized person that went away from Jesus without having their needs met. And I'm longing for that day. Now you can imagine what kind of results we're going to see when the church gets to that level. Amen? But, but we read there, uh, uh, demons came crying out of it, and many saying, you're the Christ. And we read verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the crowd sought to come to him, and try to keep from leaving them. And he said, I must preach the kingdom of God in other cities also, because for this purpose I have been apostled, is the, is the word. And so it goes on. So, the prayer, so as the prayer ministry, in, as the healing ministry increased, so did the prayer ministry. Come to Luke chapter 5, verse 16. 
the report went around, verse 15, the report went around concerning Jesus all the more and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. End of verse 17, as a result of that prayer life, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Come to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called the disciples to himself and from them he chose the twelve whom he named apostles. So his more important decisions were made in the, in the atmosphere of prayer. I just often wonder what he must have thought about Judas. Did I make a mistake? I mean, you think about it. Did I make a mistake? But he so had such revelation from God, he so knew the will of God that he chose Judas deliberately, knowing what, how he was going to turn out. Now that to me is a mystery. But it was necessary to fulfill the purpose of God. Amen? So he, he had this kind of prayer life where every decision, he knew with certainty what his father's will was. And he had the kind of prayer life that, that so charged him with power that he was ready for each and every situation which needed that power to flow. When he came suddenly to that demonized boy of the Father, when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he said to the other disciples, this guy doesn't go out except with prayer and fasting, but he didn't have to go away and pray for three weeks because he was already in that prayer and fasting mode which was ready for anything. He lived that way. And I'm longing to get there and I'm certainly making strides in that direction. I'm a lot nearer to it now than I was a few years ago, but I'm still not there yet. But I know that's the direction God wants me to go. And I know it's the direction that he wants all of us to go. Is that it's not just enough to pray until something happens. We pray and maintain that, that life so it's, we're always available. So as a result, we read in Luke 6 that power went out from him. We read in Luke chapter 8, he was praying and then the woman with the issue of blood came and touched him and she was healed. We read in Luke chapter 9, that as Jesus was praying, let's just look at that for a few moments. Verse 18, he just fed the 5,000 miraculously and then it says, it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them and saying, who do the crowd say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say the old prophets have risen again. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God, or as it has in, in Matthew's version of this, in Matthew 17, he says, you're the Christ. Matthew 16, I'm sorry, verse 18, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, blessed art thou Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And now I'm going to change your name to Peter, and I'm going to build a church out of people like you who've had revelation of who I am, and against that church, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. Now that's necessary, to have this revelation of who Jesus is. But it's also necessary in any leadership team that we have revelation of what, who we are and what our role is to be. Now Peter didn't enjoy being Jesus' disciple all the time. If he just followed Jesus because he liked him, or because he liked what he said, or because he thought he was a good guy, he would have left him. But he had revelation 
from God of who Jesus was and so he had to come into relationship with that revelation and so his commitment to Jesus was on the basis of God's revealed will and God's revealed relationship and he couldn't change that. And if we want leadership teams that stay together, because when you start to take on demonic principalities and powers, one of the things the devil will do his utmost to do is to divide you somehow or other. And if you haven't had revelation to hold you in that difficult hour, you can part company when you're not supposed to part company. And I think it's, 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 it's uh, the right of every leader to ask those that are his key leadership men and women, say, all right, who do you see me to be? And say, well, well, we believe God's raised you up and brought you to this city to lead this work, and we know that you've got that responsibility, and we're right behind you, we're totally supported, but we know that's not our role, we know it's your role. Now, such people will, will stick with you even when you do stupid things. Because they have no choice. Not if they're going to be obedient to God. So when Jesus, in John chapter 6, preached that disastrous sermon on you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to a bunch of Jews, I mean, what a, tack, what a tactless sermon to preach. I mean... Imagine all their religious feathers were being ruffled and all their religious bones were being broken. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Ugh. But he did it deliberately because he was going to sort out the people that would follow him anyway and the people that would follow him so long as he did the things that they wanted him to do. People that would, that would follow him while, while he pleased them and would leave him when he didn't. I tell you, so much of American Christianity is what I call cafeteria Christianity or restaurant Christianity. That is, you go to the restaurant and as long as they give you good meals on time and it's good food, you don't mind paying for the food and paying for the, the tip. But if you don't like what they serve, you go to another restaurant. You can order what you like, you can leave what you like, and if you don't like anything, you go to another restaurant. And the idea of covenant commitment and of being an inseparable team that God's joined together to do something is, is, a, is a foreign idea. If someone invites you to come to their church and offers you a, a bigger pay packet, you're a fool if you don't take it. We're not in the world, we're in the kingdom. And, and so Peter's deeply offended along with everybody else, but because he's had revelation of who Jesus is, he's a prisoner of that revelation. So Jesus, this whole vast company said, well, we're not listening to this stuff. It so offends us. And they all walk out. And so he turns to Peter and the others and says, are you also going to go away? And Peter says, Lord, where else can we go? We, for I'm certain and I'm sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you have the words of eternal life. And I'm a prisoner to that revelation. I can't go anywhere. But right now I would love to. Ever felt like that? A prisoner to God's will. And a prisoner to these relationships. Of course, it starts with marriage. But it, it, in a, in, it, real leadership teams, I, although it doesn't go to the same extent, it doesn't go to the same degree, there are many similarities in the covenant between a leadership team and the covenant of marriage. Although one is indissoluble, the other one can be changed in a righteous way, but you better make sure it's a righteous way. You can't go 
Now, there can come a place of leadership relationships where it's God's will to move you on and it will be sin to try and keep you in a wrong way. Or, and some people do that. They try and possess people that God's releasing to go and do something else. If it's God's time to go, they've got to be allowed to go. And you send them with your love and your blessing. And you don't, I mean, I remember some years ago now, my, my son-in-law and my daughter were uh, working, well, my son-in-law was working for us in our ministry in England, and Reinhard Bonnke felt that God wanted him, and he felt that God wanted him, to go and serve him in his crusades in Africa. So Reinhard, being the man of integrity that he is, he came to me and says, he said, brother, he said, I believe that God is calling Gordon. He's my chief administrator, ran the whole thing. He's calling to come and serve me in my ministry in Africa. But I won't do anything without you release him. That's right. That's and I was upset. I wasn't a bit happy. I thought, I know. <laughs> But I went to my study and headed out with God, and God said, this is my will. Now, Reinhold said this to me. He said, he said, he said, he said Alan, and I said, look, Reinhold, I don't like it, but I know it's God's will, and I've got to agree to it. And I'm doing my best to send him with blessing. I said, I'll get there. Just give me time. <laughs> and I did get there, and I did, I did send him with blessing. And Reinhold said, he said, Alan, I'm going to pray this. He said, I believe he's going to be with me for a number of years, and then a day will come when he will come back. I said, but he will come back ten times bigger because you gave him to me. He said, you're going to have, you're going to have tenfold what you've given. And that was literally fulfilled. Hello? So there is a time to release people. And it's, it's sinful to hang on to them when it's time for them to go. Because you're concerned about your ministry and how will you manage without them. They're not your servants, they're his servants. And so all this can only be done by revelation of the Spirit. It cannot be done by any protocol rule book. Hello? You cannot, you see, we, we've designed all kinds of protocol rule books which are just as binding as the Jewish law and we can't run that way. In the kingdom, in the, in the flow of this new wine, the only thing which decides things is what God says is his will. But of course, he, his will operates within certain parameters which can be our guidelines. Does that make sense to you? So the prayer life of Jesus, as you can see, thanks, the prayer life of Jesus, uh, it, it roved into so many areas. Now, no one, not one of his disciples, of course Judas, who was, he betrayed him. The interesting thing about David was that none of David's mighty men ever left David. Even when he killed one of them, he killed Uriah the Hittite. Now, if that had happened in your church, if you'd killed one of your key leaders and, and gone to bed with his wife, I tell you, you would have had a problem. I mean, that was the reality of the situation. Come on. And then try to get him to go home so it looked like it was him and not you that did it. I mean, this was the kind of deception that David got into. And Nathan, Nathan the prophet came and nailed him and he came to the deep, deep, deep broken repentance. But the interesting thing is that all these 30 mighty men stayed with him and didn't waver in their commitment to him. That's what I find so amazing. Or at least the 29 that were left. Now isn't that staggering? 
And they didn't keep saying, oh yeah, but you sinned, so we can't trust you anymore. Because the cleansing was so pure and so complete. It's got to be real. It's not going to be a, a, a patch up, but the deep, deep brokenness of David, his deep contrition and, and God's total cleansing of, of that horrible, wicked, evil things that he did and the power of the blood of Jesus a thousand years before it was shed to cleanse that whole situation. That's what enabled him to go on and continue. And God said, here's a man after my own heart. Isn't that amazing? Here's a man that I was able to do all my will through. You think, man, we've got a bit of rethinking to do about certain things, beloved. Because yes. you cross the line and make a, make a mis well, mistake, you sin. I mean, the, the, well, some of the cruelest and most unforgiving and, and illegal practices go on within the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then on the other hand, when it's politically correct, we tolerate all kinds of sin, never confront it. Jesus wasn't like that. And it was his prayer life that brought this, this clarity and, and, and producing those mighty men, knowing who they were and, and teaching them and modeling that, what, what he was to them. That was the greatest work for the kingdom that he could possibly do. Okay, let's move on. If you go on to page um, eight, you'll find that Luke chapter 11, verses one to 20, the whole chapter 11 is a great teaching chapter on prayer. I haven't got time to deal with it here, um, although I've got brief notes on it, but I'm, again, I'm not pushing tapes on you, but there is a set of tapes I've done which are five steps to powerful praying which deal with this chapter in detail. And I feel we've got to go through these steps. It begins with an effective personal prayer life, and that begins, as we said yesterday, it begins with having a real relationship with the Father. You cannot begin to pray effectively until you've had a revelation of the Father. When you had a revelation of the Father, then you can come to intimacy with God, and then you and God can have a, a conversational life, which is really what prayer is about. Prayer is not a shopping list. Amen? It's not just getting, you know, it's not, thank you, it's not just a life of petitioning. It's a life of walking with God in such intimacy that you know his mind, he can speak to you, he's more real to you and you're able to communicate with him as clearly and more clearly than anybody else in your life. And then you get this incredible revelation that you've become his son. Again, I have not time to teach this during this this. Um, school of the word, but there, again there are tapes on this, to come to this revelation of what it means to be God's son, male or female, is such a necessary revelation. Once you've got there, then you can start to pray. And if you haven't got there, you haven't really learned to pray. And I've said this so many times, and I'll probably say it several times in this school of the word, is that the ability for the church to pray is dependent upon how good we are on our own. You don't suddenly become effective in prayer by coming together. That's the mistake that many, many churches make, and they have prayer meetings where we don't get anywhere in our prayer meetings because we're no good on our own. It says in scripture, one will chase a thousand. 
it says in scripture, Chu will chase 10,000. In other words, if a person already knows how to chase a thousand, in other words, they're already somewhat powerful in prayer, when they come together with someone else who's powerful in prayer, you put the two of them together, you, get a, you multiply your prayer power by a factor of 10. But if you're doing nothing on your own and you can't kill anything, you cannot overcome anything, you can't conquer anything on your own, if you're useless on prayer on your own, coming to pray with someone else doesn't help you. Because if one's chasing zero, and then two come together, what's ten times zero? Still zero. And that's why so many of our prayer meetings are ineffective. It's not the prayer meetings, it's the individual prayer life of the people which makes the prayer meetings ineffective. When people get through into an effective personal prayer life, then when you come together, you get the, the power of that synergy. You get the power of, of, of exponential synergy of your individual prayer lives. That's what you get. Then you find, I've got about two minutes left, then you find so when you've got, learned to have an effective personal prayer life and you learn to effectively pray with others, then you learn to get need, you get, I'm going to stop, I'm not going to try and rush this through in two minutes. Because I, the tape's running out, we need a break. So let's have a 15 minute break and I'll come back and finish this afterwards. Is that okay?